about to hear my conversation with Toby Heaps. We talk about his career and how he became co-founder and CEO of Corporate Knights, the decision behind putting forward the Corporate Knight Top 100 ranked companies, and how he constructs an index that will now be available as a McKinsey ETF and fund. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with a special guest, Toby Heaps. Uh, Toby is the co-founder and CEO of Corporate Nights. Toby, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Great, great to be here. Toby, before we get into uh, some questions uh, more about you, I think it would make sense if you let the, the audience know uh, what Corporate Nights is, uh, and uh, and that'll provide the basis for why you're on the podcast, I'm sure. Sure. So Corporate Nights, uh, just to be clear, it's the Corporate Nights with a K, not with an N. It's totally Great. different genre, Corporate Nights with an N. And uh, we're a uh, media research company. We've been around for about 20 years, and our sort of purpose mission is to speed up the transition to a sustainable economy. We started out uh, a couple kids with a magazine. Somehow we got the Globe and Mail to, to carry us. We now are carried by the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And from the get-go, we've always had a, a strong belief in, in Peter Drucker's maxim that what gets measured gets managed. And so we've been big fans of rankings from the get-go from our first issue. And we're probably best known for the global 100 most sustainable companies in the world ranking that we've been doing since 2005. That's great. Uh, we'll definitely uh, spend some time on that Global 100 later on in the conversation. First, let's get uh, a little bit more about your background, uh, Toby. Um, Corporate Nights uh, sort of started as a, a media uh, thing. You, you referenced the uh, top 100. Um, I'd love to know your background. How did you get uh, involved in this space and, and find yourself as co-founder and CEO? I think what well, I come from a long tradition of rabble rousers. Okay. My uh, my great-grandfather was one of the organizers of the Winnipeg General Strike. Oh, wow. And, uh, he, was, he was arrested and uh, they were char- he was charged with a seditious conspiracy and they tried to, um, to export him back to the UK, but uh, he refused to have legal counsel. He represented himself with the sixth grade education and was one of the few strike leaders for nationals not to be deported back. Wow. Um, and then he, he went on to um, be elected to the House of Parliament is a labor MP and introduce legislation uh, along with the, uh, gov- the the governing party of the day to um, establish the old age pension and uh, also unemployment insurance. And so that was always sort of ringing in the back of the year. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of ran down through the, uh, the, the next generations. So I was always looking for where I could sort of move the needle where there's a huge gap between the potential and the reality. And I think after my first year of university, where it kind of hit me because I always thought I wanted to go work for the UN, but I was mm-hmm. in my first year of the university and I was in Bosnia. It's 1995. The, uh, the war had just ended and, uh, there were still explosions going off and things like that. We were, I was doing something with the UN, uh, sports camps. And I remember being in the capital of the Serbian part of the Bosnia Republic of Srpska. And before the world bank arrived, there was a Siemens office there distributing cell phones. And it kind of hit me that, the private sector really is all pervasive in our society. <laughs> sure. And if you want to move the needle, you got to figure out how to harness that power. And that really planted a seed that, um, you know, I think was that put me on a trajectory for corporate nights. Wow. That's, uh, 
That's fascinating. Uh, so uh, when you were in university, you were working for the, the UN in Bosnia. What did you do uh, upon graduation? So I, I graduated, you know, like most people that go to universities these days, I had a, had a hefty student debt. I went back to, uh, to Calgary. Um, I tried to find a job. I'm from Calgary originally. Okay. I printed out 2000 resumes. I dropped them off in the office, you know, each office in the downtown office buildings. Didn't hear anything for about two weeks. And then every day for the rest of the summer, I'd get about five or six rejection letters saying, thanks for your inquiry. Um, so I kept looking and, and I luckily found a sort of ground level position copy editor at a new dot com on Bay Street. I was at the time I was working at Joey Tomatoes washing dishes. Okay. I had to inform my boss, uh, the, uh, the chef Howard, that I'd be leaving, uh, given my two weeks notice. He was really disturbed because he was planning on promoting me to salads. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't understand. Um, so I landed on Bay Street. Uh, it was called investment.com. It was a firm that uh, used to be a diamond mining company of some sort. And somebody in nineteen in the in mid nineties bought the URL investment.com. Okay. Kind of an valuable URL. So they raised some millions of dollars around it, hired a bunch of people from the National Post and bought a mutual fund magazine. And uh, I landed there just when it was at its sort of high point, ready to crash down that sort of dot that dot com went to dot bomb. Right. And uh, I remember sitting there in the Bay Street office. We had like there was fifty or sixty people there and and two months in there was seven or eight people there. And I was the only content guy left. I had no idea what a mutual fund was, but all of a sudden I was the editor in chief of the main mutual fund magazine in Canada. And so it was kind of a crash course and I got to learn a lot pretty fast. It sounds like it. Um, uh, those were uh, heady times, the nineties the and then coming of course, uh, through the, the bust of the, the tech wreck. So how did you make your way there to the idea of corporate nights and, and becoming a co-founder co of that? I did a few issues of the mutual fund review. And the whole mutual fund industry was really fascinating. The personalities. I remember interviewing Michael Lee Chin and Peter Kundal, um, and the sort of the legends in the space. And they all, they were all such characters. And I, I really enjoyed that profile piece, but just covering the mutual funds, you know, what's up, what's down the top 10, the worst 10, the dogs, the stars. It, um, it wasn't, it wasn't intriguing enough, uh, for me. And, and then I came across social responsible investing and I thought, ah, this is interesting. It's not all it's cracked up to be, you know, there's no, it's not about Osama bin Laden versus Mother Teresa. There's a lot of gray area in between here, but this is interesting because you had two balls in the air. And so I, I wanted to write more about that. And I, my colleague at the time, uh, one of the co-founders of Corporate Nights, we went down to Indigo's bookstore and we were looking at the magazine racks to see maybe there's a magazine that's writing about this stuff. We couldn't really find anything. And so he said, well, why don't you just start one up? And I said, well, for one, I you know, have no money. For two, I have no idea how to start up a magazine. And, uh, and then he said, don't worry. He goes, I don't have any money either, but I know how to write a business plan and I can lay out a magazine and together I'm sure we can figure it out. And so, uh, that was the, uh, the beginning of a journey. And, uh, and yeah, that was, you know, about a year later, we published our first issue in the Globe and Mail. Wow. Uh, that's incredible. I, I'm curious, uh, early success to get into the Globe and Mail. Um, and certainly it doesn't sound like that was, uh, necessarily part of the initial, uh, business plan, which, uh, seems like it was hastily put together, but, uh, how did, how did that relationship uh, come to pass? And then the subsequent increased distribution between, uh, the, the post and the wall street journal. Um, well, we, uh, we were really kind of struggling at the get go. Everybody thought it was a crazy idea because print was kind of you know, falling out of vogue with digital sure. rising. Uh, all the big media companies were, nobody was launching a new mass consumer magazine. And we tried to get some support from Rogers. I camped out at the office at 7, 7 a.m. 
for the uh, the VP of uh, publishing there. And he, he was kind enough to give me a few minutes of his time. And I explained to him this idea of starting a mass market publication on responsible capitalism. And uh, he said uh, it was crazy and uh, sent me sort of on my way. We went to another investor who's sort of like the sugar daddy of, you know, the angel investor for social entrepreneurs in Canada. Okay. And he's a really nice guy. Um, he even funds stuff. He doesn't care so much about the return all the time. So I sat down with him, went through the business plan, and then he kind of patted me on the head. And he said, you look like a bright young kid with a lot of energy. Don't waste your time on this stuff. You know, if you really want to get to the conclusion that you're going to get to with this initiative, get all the money you can, put it in a paper bag and set it on fire. Um, <laughs> but he, he's, he's a subscriber now, so that's, that's nice. All right. <laughs> um, and then with the Globe, it was, um, you know, they have some criteria for editorial integrity. And we went and um, uh, we, we've been writing some columns for them as well through the uh, partnership with investment.com. And uh, we made an arrangement with them. They, we passed their muster. They, they, they said, you can put your magazine in our newspaper, these criteria, you have to pay us some money. We said no problem. Problem was we didn't have any money. Um, we did the ranking. Uh, we got a ranking firm. We said we'll give you an ad in our magazine that will be in the Globe and Mail. It was Jancy. Now it's Sustainalytics. Right. They said great. We'll we'll do the ranking for you. And then we we went to our printer and we asked them to print the magazine. They said it was going to cost forty thousand dollars. We said great. Um, we'll pay you as soon as we have the money. They said well we need the money before you get the magazines. And uh, we said okay we'll figure it out. And, um, the problem was we, you know, we didn't have any money at all. So there's a bunch of sort of chicken and eggs. Um, but we found a, a nice a gentleman named Martin in the uh, yellow pages under the, under the category of factoring. And, uh, he was able to, we had enough ads sold where he was able to front us the, uh, the money okay. we needed to put everybody up front. And, and then we were off to the races and the Washington post was a, a little bit tougher. We staked them out for a couple of years. The day that Obama was inaugurated in 2008, I went to DC for some of the festivities and then I went and camped out because uh, we tried through the official channels, but they they had a strict policy about uh, inserting third party publications into the Washington Post. And so I camped out in the lobby and I was looking for the president. And then when I saw him walking through back from lunch, I kind of flagged him down and gave him my elevator speech, gave him the magazine, told him what we've been doing with the Globe and Mail. Then he said he'd get back to me. And uh, a few months later, we were we were in the Washington Post. Um, and then wow. the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, was sort of a natural progression from that. That's that's uh, um, wonderful background, Toby. A lot of uh, tenacity I'm, I'm gathering from you, and uh, and and commitment to the cause, to be sure. Early days, so it was just you and your co-founder. Where were you sourcing content from? Were you were you also the the journalist putting together the articles and uh, fulfilling the the magazine, or or did you have help on that? Oh yeah, no, we were writing the articles, selling the ads, doing the research. Um, in many cases, taking out the garbage, my, my accounting system at the time was a shoebox with a bunch of receipts. Okay. And, uh, it's, it's evolved a little bit since then. That's, that's great. Um, it sounds like a, a labor of love. I'm curious, uh, when you look back at corporate nights and you look back, uh, I guess throughout all the years, but even particularly most recent years where you've, uh, got beyond the shoebox, uh, full of receipts and, uh, presumably have a little bit more, uh, support. Uh, in, in operating some of the, the business. Um, how do you judge if you're successful? Is this through the amount of distribution that you have of the magazine? Is it, is it some other way? How do you judge success? No, I, I don't think so. I think the way we judge success, there's a lot of initiatives we've been involved with where there was many actors and I can see how we helped them speed the, speed the initiative up. That was, that was, but the way we measure success is 
are we moving the needle on the most sort of fundamental metrics that will determine the fate of our civilization? So are we reducing our greenhouse gas emissions at a country and global level quickly enough to avoid the sort of Mad Max scenarios that, that, that face us if we don't? Um, is it, that's, that's probably the biggest thing that we look at. But we also look at things like, is the diversity of the boardroom changing? It start to look more like the society that, that the companies serve, um, more like the people in the subway that, that represent the customers of the companies. Right. We look at things like, you know, are people able to get by? Are things affordable? Is the ratio of the CEO to average worker pay going down or up? Uh, we look at things like pension funds. Are they being better funded? You know, are they, are they, are, are they more generous in terms of the amounts that are being put in and set aside for, for workers? So we look at a lot of um, metrics that are really kind of fundamental to social security, social safety, and um, and then uh, the existential ones that that will influence the, uh, the environmental context that that will really be the sort of big macro determinant of, of what happens in the next couple hundred years to our species. That's uh, quite uh, ambitious targets that you're holding yourself accountable to. And uh, maybe what I'll do at this point is we'll, we'll talk about the corporate nice 100. You referenced it earlier in the conversation. Part of the reason that uh, that you've come on to the podcast. Uh, is um, that today we're, we're announcing the launch of a partnership between Corporate Nice and McKenzie. Well, we're offering uh, investors uh, for the first time an investable vehicle to get uh, into the Corporate Nice uh, top 100 uh, companies. So I thought maybe we can spend the rest of the conversation talking about that ranking uh, and what goes into it. Maybe just start with a general question, uh, which is how do you approach thinking about ranking a hundred uh, the best 100 companies uh, when you're talking about a universe uh, that's the entire globe. Sure. Well, number one, it can't be a black box. Your criteria, your, it has to be a glass box. It has to be radically transparent. Right. If it's not, people won't trust it for good reason. Two, you have to be as objective and rules-based as possible. There's always an element of subjectivity to deciding which criteria to use and how to define your weighting systems. But it has to be set up in a way that's replicable. So if if somebody wanted to take our methodology and recreate the global 100, there has to be enough detail so that they could do that if they wanted to spend the 10,000 hours. Right. And, 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 and so that's really important. And then you have to define, okay, what's the universe? Um, sometimes companies ask us, how much does it cost to apply to the global 100? And it's sort of like, that's not how it works. You know, everybody that's making over a billion dollars US is automatically included in the universe, all publicly traded companies that make over a billion US. So that's somewhere a little less than 7,000 companies. And then you want to measure them on meaningful criteria. But before you go into that, you want to weed out the real dogs because you don't want to have a global 100 that has some you know, bankrupt, scandal-ridden company uh, inside it. So we have about two dozen what we call red flags, and we have one financial red flag. The financial red flag looks at the F-score, so various financial ratios. And if the company's heading towards bankruptcy, it gets weeded out. It only takes out a few percent of the starting universe. So we're left with most of the companies. We then look at companies on the behavior and product red flags. So there's about 24 of those. They deal with things like controversial weapons, for-profit prisons, severe human rights violations. And we've identified at Corporate Nights what we believe to be the sort of most credible, trustworthy, decision-useful source for defining which companies are really on the egregious end. And so once we apply all those screens, some people would say, oh, well, who's left to invest in? You know, if you if you take out all the companies that are doing any harm, you're going to be able to invest in anybody. Turns out it only takes out about 10% of the universe. Yeah. So we're okay. still left with 90% of the overall universe, you know, over 6,000 companies. 
And then we grade each company on up to 25 key performance indicators, but we're really putting kind of equal emphasis on two faucets of the company. One faucet, which has 50% of the weight is the behavior of the company, the operations. So we're looking how efficient is it with managing its carbon emissions, water, waste, injuries, fatalities, paying its taxes, the diversity of the board, the, the ratio of the CO to average worker pay. So that all, that whole, all bundles up to 50%. The weights are variable and uh, influenced by which industry the company is in. Um, we have an interesting transparent formula for determining that based on impact. The other half of the criteria, and this is what we've introduced over the last five years, is the nature of the, of the company's core business. So how does it make its money and how is it investing in its core business? What percent of its revenues are earned from products and services that meet a definition that we've put out in great transparency for each industry that, that aligns to sustainable development goals? And what percent of the company's capital expenditure, research and development and acquisitions uh, are going into a growing that line of sort of sustainable uh, business offerings? And then we percentile rank each company on each of those indicators, apply the weights, and then we get a sort of numbered list. And we look at our benchmark. In this case, it's the MSCI All Country World Index. And let's say there's 18 financials companies uh, or 18% of the index is financials companies. Then we ascribe the top the top 18 scoring financials companies um, according to our, our, our scoring criteria, then make it into the index and they're equally weighted. And so that's that's kind of how we do it in a nutshell. It's uh, we've done it um, 19 times and uh, comes out every year, about third week of January. Uh, it's released in Davos during the World Economic Forum. And uh, it's been really interesting since we introduced this sort of new language for sustainable business, this language around sustainable revenue. What, what is sustainable revenue? What is sustainable CapEx? And it's been really encouraging to see the growth overall in the market of sustainable revenue and of sustainable CapEx. And it's been really, really encouraging to see that the business solutions now to climate change are growing much more quickly than the business problems uh, that are causing cl climate change. That's wonderful. You've given me a few things that I want to follow up on. Um, maybe I'll start by getting a little bit more granularity um, into the, the process of uh, selecting the, the top 100. You said the 50% comes from sort of the behavior of the, the businesses, and uh, that includes sort of your diversity, inclusion, equity, carbon emission, water, et cetera, uh, and that you uh, make those variables change their weightings by industry. What is it about the industries that you sort of look to, maybe some examples that help that bring that to light about how that can shift uh, when you're looking for those companies? Sure. So if you're looking at a bank, it really doesn't matter that much what the bank's emissions are from their, their headquarter buildings. Um, it matters more. The banks are making tens of billions of dollars in profits. And so it matters more if they're, if they're playing by the book on their taxes and paying their fair share, or right. if they're taking more aggressive, potentially risky measures where they're locating their offices in Bermuda and Ireland and, uh, and shirking a lot of their taxes. So there's a much higher weight on taxes, like a hundred times higher weight on taxes for banks than there is for, for water or carbon use. Whereas for a mining company, you'd be looking at things like injuries and water right. use and waste, and uh, it's not as high as a, a weight on taxes. That's uh, perfect. Uh, the other 50% is the nature of the core business. Um, so would that automatically exclude a lot of sort of the traditional oil and gas companies or traditional miners? Um, you, you've mentioned that you do weight by sector, so there must be something in there. Uh, but do you see the more traditional oil and gas or, or mining sectors or are they screened out? Yeah, this is actually really exciting. And 
And I, I think, as I mentioned, I'm from Calgary, sort of, you know, Alberta, big, uh, big oil and gas uh, place. And uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm super bullish and optimistic about the potential for some of these major energy companies to transform themselves. They really have a lot of capital, know-how, engineering, and project management uh, experience. And we're seeing now, in the particularly in the oil and gas sector, there's three companies, if I can, I, I'd be happy to just give you three quick examples. Sure. So the, the sort of flagship company is one that most people haven't heard of, and there's two of the, the majors. The flagship company, I would say, is Neste, not Nestle, but Neste Oil. And uh, it's based in Finland, major major oil refiner in that part of the world. And they made a pivot about eight or nine years ago to really kind of go all in on uh, sustainable biofuels, sustainable aviation fuels, which huge growth market. And their valuation has uh, just exploded in a good way, um, way you know, way outperforming its oil and gas peers. And it's now one of the leading providers of sustainable aviation biofuels. So they're earning more than half their money. They're doing more than 80% of their capex into growing their sustainable biofuels. If we look at some of the majors, you know, five, six years ago, it was hard to find anybody doing anything too significant. Nobody was in double digits in terms of, you know, percent of revenue that's coming from low carbon sources or investment. But this just this past year, both BP and Total Energies, you know, two of the big majors, both allocated and spent more than 25% of their total investments into legitimate renewables and storage and electric gas stations. Wow. So it's pretty interesting to see the the pickup because you know going from two or three percent to twenty five percent in a short number of years for a huge multi billion dollar enterprise like that really tells you which way the world is going. On the mining companies, I mean, mining companies are a critical, essential ingredient to the low carbon economy. Where do you think all these batteries are coming from? If we don't get the biggest risk to the low carbon economy not happening on time right now is bottlenecks for minerals, um, things like copper and nickel, rare earth metals, and so what we look at is we look at uh, which companies are um, mining these critical minerals for the low carbon economy in a responsible way? And there's various certifications. Canada has one of the leading ones called Towards Sustainable Mining. So we look for the AAA threshold. Uh, there's an international one called IRMA, which is evolving to become this kind of the global standard. And so we look at what portion of their revenues are coming from these critical minerals mined in a responsible way. And you get amazing companies like Tech Resources has been there for many years. Um, you get um, companies like Schitzer Steel, uh, which makes all its money from recycling steel with uh, pure renewable energy, 117-year-old company, but it's now riding that sort of recycling wave that's that's going to be a mega trend for the next few decades. And so it it doesn't exclude any industry. Every industry has the potential to be sustainable. And uh, it's just, it's about, you know, if you're a car company, you can go to electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles. If you're a real estate company, you can go to smart buildings that are electrified and, um, and energy efficient. Uh, there, if you're a food company, you can go to sustainable agriculture or non-GMO or organic fair trade. So there's every industry, if you're making appliances or semiconductors, every industry has different sustainability criteria that you can you can adhere to and, and sort of uh, jump on that train. And the really cool thing, the thing that makes me optimistic is in almost every case, the sustainability uh, lane in a particular industry is moving much faster now than the sort of normal lane. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. And uh, and the, the more capital that flows into the space, the faster it's going to go. And the faster we go, the way better chance we have of uh, creating a thriving civilization for our children and grandchildren. Great, Toby. That's uh, inspirational. And I love the examples, uh, diverse 
uh, in sectors that uh, don't immediately jump to mind when you think about uh, uh, sustainable and renewable economy, uh, but clearly very important components to it. I'm curious, um, the different metrics that you've determined in the different areas that you're judging the, the companies, uh, regardless of how they are, are weighted, how do you come up with each of those different metrics? Are you looking to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? Are you looking to some other uh, body or is this something that you've proprietarily uh, come up with? Yeah, we so we, we look at a few things. Uh, we're looking for anything that gives us meaningful insight into a company's impact on the Sustainable Development Goals. So that's overarching. Okay. We, we pretty much ignore process indicators. You know, like, does a company have a policy on human rights? That's, that's a really poor uh, indicator for accountability purposes. It can be a useful management tool, but it's right. really poor for ranking or accountability purposes. So we focus on outcome-based metrics. So we're looking at, you know, like I said, the percent of directors who are female, the, the, the dollars earned per, per ton of carbon emissions, the number of injuries per 200,000 hours, things you can put a number on. Things that are harder to fudge and harder to smudge doesn't mean they're impossible. And trust me, there's a lot of issues with the uh, the current uh, nature of voluntary disclosure, even though there's a lot of evolution and it's proving leaps and bounds. Uh, there's still still a lot of issues. You got to be really careful when you're grading companies not to penalize the good disclosures, um, the ones who are providing full information over the ones right. who are providing partial information. So we look for those indicators that we can, that are outcome based. And then we, we look from a practical perspective, is it in the real world, can we get this data? Because there might be a perfect indicator, but if nobody's reporting it, it doesn't really make sense. And so we have some indicators like that on our sort of observer list. And we sometimes test them out as observer indicators and then they become mainstream indicators. And we're always looking for like at least 10% disclosure. Uh, we're now up to well over 50% of the companies disclosing most of the indicators, especially the regulatory indicators where you get close to 100%. And on the sustainable revenue, sustainable CapEx, we've had it all hands on deck with a pretty significantly sized analyst team of expert researchers really focused on the sort of 3000 biggest companies and going bottom up. And we now have good data, um, or reasonable data, non-zero values for over half of the, um, the 3000 largest companies on sustainable revenue and sustainable CapEx. That's great. Along those lines, Toby, I'm curious, how has the nature of engaging with companies uh, evolved over the uh, 19 years or so that you've been doing the, the Corporate Knights 100? Um, you, you've already sort of indicated that it's evolved quite a bit, but how open are companies uh, versus where they were? I mean, I think that the first year we did it, we might have notified a few of the companies before it came out. And it was sort of like we did a press release and then companies were like, hey, what, what's this ranking? 2005. And now it's kind of moved to a point where we have uh, an, you know, fairly well-developed proprietary online platform, which has a login page for each of the 7,000 companies that we assess. In many cases, there'll be five or six or seven people from a company that have logins. And then all the information and the, the log for all the information on that company is in there. The companies are invited after we collect the information to engage with the portal, augment, refine, comment. We then review their comments. Often uh, there'll be a phone call or two to clarify things, especially with the sustainable revenue, sustainable CapEx. So we have sure. to get more details in order to be able to count stuff. And then, um, and then we'll, we'll finalize it. An email goes to the CEOs to let them know if they made it. There'll be scorecards sent out to all companies. So they have a sort of free benchmarking to see how they stand against their, their peers and if they're improving or, or going down on each of the key indicators. And then we have a pretty major sort of media operation that goes when it gets launched where most of the companies will, will make a lot of hay out of it. And, um, and global wire services like Reuters will cover it. So it's kind of gone from no communication to we probably 
you know, for, for the biggest companies, we probably have upwards of three or four dozen points of contact over the course of a year. And uh, it really helps us get better data and, uh, and correct errors. And, and from a process perspective, it, it gives fair comment from a journalistic perspective to the company before something's made right. public. And uh, it's hard to get the companies engaged. We're fortunate we have over $17 trillion of companies by market cap engaging with us. And we're trying to boost that every day because um, the companies get bombarded by all sorts of folks. Now there's like literally sure. hundreds of raiders out there, but the, the global 100 has a cache and, um, and we're asking specific questions. They're not just sort of like, tell us your green revenue. You know, we'll be, we see that you say you earned money from your green portfolio buildings. Could you delineate what portion of that came from lead platinum buildings that are electrified, you know, that, those types of questions. And so we find the, the, the leading companies are happy to engage with us because they, they respect our criteria and our process. And they like that it's rules-based and uh, that when they want to know why they went up or down, there's a really clear answer. It's not just sort of like right. a finger in the wind kind of thing. That's great. And uh, do you work with other, maybe not rating agencies, but other groups that are trying to uh, improve uh, outcomes for, uh, for businesses? Or are you sort of acting independently? Yeah, and we work with a lot of different groups, um, also institutional investors. Like when we go through our, our red flags, we source those from what we believe to be to be the most credible group. So it might be Coal Exit, which is an NGO based in Europe, or it might be Influence Map, which keeps tabs on what the major companies are doing with respect to climate lobbying and gives a score to client to companies. And if they get a, a bad score, they don't make our ranking. So we have a, a number of relationships in this sort of ENGO government um, institutional investor space. The Norwegian Sovereign Fund, the oil Great. fund, they actually keep a really sophisticated, uh, detailed, transparent list of the companies that have really crossed the red line on human rights and environmental violations. And we use that as, as, our, as a sort of the, as an input into our red flag for those criteria. And uh, yeah, we, we try to, we, we synthesize about 350 eco labels. So when we're trying to delineate what, what counts as sustainable revenue, we go through uh, there's globally about 350 eco labels, whether it's fair trade, organic energy star, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And we evaluate which ones are credible according to four criteria that we've, we've established, including transparency and third party verification and, and, uh, something that you have to renew. It's not just a one-off and also being focused on outcomes, not just processes. And we use that, um, that synthesis of, of all that global intelligence across industries and regions, uh, really, really helps us to better tag and quantify the sustainable revenues and the investments that companies are making. So it's, it's really kind of a synthesis of a lot of good work that's going on out there. And uh, we see ourselves as a sort of an integrator, um, but we do do a fair bit of bottom up to apply that on the, on the revenue and the CapEx side. Last question about the CK100 specifically. And I want to talk a little bit about portfolio construction is the way that I always think about it or, or frame it. Uh, what really the decision to equal weight at the 1% and then use the MSCI Acqui sector weights uh, for uh, to, to mirror the CK100. What was the motivation behind uh, behind that decision? And over time, how closely has it tracked to that MSCI uh, Acqui? Sure. I mean, the motivation was... I guess twofold. One was to keep it simple, and um, if you're trying to sort of mirror the the sector composition of the benchmark, the equal weight application on day one, it's, it's easy. But the more important one was we wanted every company in the global 100 in index to matter. So we have some companies in there that are you know are relatively small, like Vita Soy or something, a few billion dollar company, and then we have some companies in there that are huge, like Apple. 
And if we did it on a market cap weighted basis, you know, Vita soy allocation wouldn't really matter. Their performance wouldn't really matter. Right. And so we wanted every company in the global 100 index to matter. And so that's, that's why we made it equal weight. So on, when we recon, when we reconstitute the index each year in, in January, um, it's roughly in line with the MSCI ACWI. There's some, some discrepancies, for example, we merged utilities, the GIX sector utilities and energy. We merged it into one category and we take so okay. eight, eight companies. We might be underweight energy. For example, this year we only had Neste in there. So it should have been a drag on performance, but this year we, the, the index handily outperformed the, uh, the ACWI, even without that energy, uh, bump from the, uh, the Russia invasion. And, uh, and then over the year, we just let it ride. So of course, um, it won't mirror as closely the index sector composition on the second week of January before we rebound, we reconstitute rebalance. Right. Uh, but we've been doing it like that for 18 years and we did some back testing on different strategies to, to try it out. And it turns out that it's a lower trading cost, much lower trading cost to do it this way because it's just sort of you know, sure. lock and load and, and let it ride. And it also turns out um, it performs, uh, there's no performance benefit for, you know, doing a market cap weighted uh, approach or um, so, you, you know, be adding complexity and cost for, for no upside. And so, um, and we have the track record and the continuity for 18 plus years showing that this, this strategy can, can, can hold its own against the, um, other strategies and the, the benchmark, um, quite, quite, quite substantially. Great. Uh, last question for you, Toby, you had uh, said earlier in the conversation that the way that you judge the success of your, uh, company quite inspirationally, frankly, uh, is the global progress to, uh, reducing greenhouse uh, gas emissions. Uh, and, uh, I think you, you mentioned the paraphrasing, avoiding the Mad Max, like, uh, future, uh, for our future generations. How would you have uh, rated uh, your success in 2022? And then what's your view going forward? So in 2022, I'm, I'm really happy uh, for, for two reasons. I have an eyes wide open. We're, we're tracking what's going on, you know, the wildfires, the droughts, the heat domes. Um, you know, there's a lot of challenges that we're going to be facing. But the reason that I feel, re I feel really good about 2022 is when I look at the growth in the economy of the sustainable economy, companies that are earning money, the GDP and revenue that's earned from solutions to climate change, it's just growing off the charts. You know, like it's growing three times faster than the rest of the economy. Right. And, um, and so, and the reason it's growing is because it's, it's better and uh, it's more profitable. And the way our economy works is you don't grow unless you're better and more profitable. That's the only way you get the long-term growth. Sure. And so uh, when I look at the global 100 this year, uh, half of their revenues by our measurements on average were from sustainable sources. These are huge companies, over 7 trillion of market cap. And when I look at the sort of economy as a whole, it's at 5%. So it's growing, you know, so we had 10 times more exposure, but the economy is 5%. It's growing. It's up, it's up from 4% uh, a year ago. So that's decent growth. And when I look at the performance of the global 100, and I see that even in a year where we didn't have oil exposure, so it should have been a drag, we still outperformed on a one year and on the index level, uh, one year, three year, five year, 10 year since inception. And it's being driven almost exclusively by the security selection. Um, that really gives me a lot of hope because if, if you can get higher returns by doing the right thing for, for people on the planet, it's going to become pretty popular. And if it becomes pretty popular, a lot of things that we can't imagine being possible are going to become possible in a really big hurry. 
And so I'm really excited about that. And I'm super excited that, you know, I, my kids are ESPs, my friends, family, people always ask me about this. They can now be part of this. They can be part of this revolution, this movement um, with their investments and they can support it. And, and make no mistake, it makes a difference when you invest in a company. Some people think secondary market, how does this matter? When you invest in a company, you boost valuation. When right. you boost the valuation, you make it possible for the company to deploy more capital, to grow faster and grow solutions faster, speed up the transition. And also everybody wants to, you know, you're, you're investing for a reason. You're investing to get a return. And, uh, and so I'm super happy that, you know, normal people, average people, uh, not just the sort of private wealth guys at Goldman Sachs, are going to be able to get into this strategy and also benefit from this uh, this transition from the companies that are really powering uh, powering the leadership and moving the fastest uh, to make it happen. Toby, uh, let's call it there. I want to thank you very sincerely for everything that you've done. You've clearly led your life with a, a commitment to making the world a better place than when you found it or as you as you exist in it. Uh, and uh, the tenacity and the uh, just dedication to the space is, is profound. I think it's come through this uh, conversation uh, and uh, couldn't be more proud as a employee of McKenzie to partner with a firm like yours. So, Toby, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.